Father, we thank you for the salvation that we enjoy through the Lord Jesus Christ and for the preservation of the text of your word down through the centuries that we tonight can in freedom read that text, study it, and be guided through it by the Holy Spirit. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Since we're in uh, Joshua and the campaigns and the wars and conquests, <clears throat> I kind of wanted to just show a few slides. This is an optimal viewing environment. Um, but uh, we'll show a few of these slides of some of the terrain involved in this campaign um, before we get into the, the lesson itself. Um, if you look in your notes... Uh, to the map where I outline the strategies, that strategy A and strategy B, I think it's the uh, so-called page four, which was misnumbered. And you'll see those two, those two kind of strategies. Remember, strategy A, penetration from the south into the land, was the strategy of choice at the beginning. It was the original strategy of conquest of the land. And because the people... Um, in, when they, they did a, remember, they, they did a reconnoitering, they did a spying operation, went through the land, got all the data and the intelligence stuff, and then prompt, promptly misinterpreted all of it inside a framework of unbelief. And because of that failure on their part to look at the facts, but from the standpoint of God's promises, instead they looked at the facts from the standpoint of the autonomous mind. And it was unbelief. And you remember that strategy A never was executed, uh, even though we know later, 40 years later, from Rahab uh, in Jericho that, in fact, the, the Canaanite inhabitants were terrified that they would be conquered. So it's an interesting case of both sides were terrified of the other. And uh, there was no engagement. Uh, strategy B, uh, tonight we'll be looking at B1, B2, a little bit of B3, because we want to just summarize that the strategy B, was to enter from the east and reach the high ground. And classic, this classic military operations that you seize the high ground because whoever controls the high ground controls the low ground. And you can see that principle operate today. I mean, this is why... Uh, you have airplanes that control the air. This is why even within the air battle, the order of battle today, you have what are called CAPs or combat air patrols that patrol at high altitude and they hold the high ground away from the bad guys so that the fighter pilots that are flying the low aircraft that are doing the bombing missions can execute their missions and come back safely, that they won't be attacked from on top. And that's called flying the cap or combat air patrol. So it's always the high land, the high ground. You see it again with satellites and satellite recon. That the idea of the military having satellites is so they can seize the high ground. This is why back in 19, when was it? 1957, in the fall of the year, when the Soviets launched Sputnik. And um, it was observed, by the way, for the first time over here at Aberdeen Proving Ground that, that in the evening it was deployed. And all of a sudden, this was a shock, a tremendous shock in 1957 in the United States because we had had a space program of sorts. And we had all kinds of embarrassing failures in our program. All of a sudden, here the Soviets are, and they've got a satellite up already. 
And I can't tell you, those of you who remember those days can remember, it was just, it was sort of the, um, almost on the scale of the assassination of JFK. That's the way I can describe it. I was at MIT at the time, and the very night that Sputnik went up, the head of NASA was supposed to give a guest lecture there. And needless to say, they canceled it. But um, the emotional shock of them seizing that high ground from us uh, was very intense. So the strategy that you're observing in the map goes back to this high ground doctrine, that he who holds the high ground wins. And you can see it spiritually, because as we brought out last week, uh, that's the whole strategy that God himself is using against Satan. Satan has access to heaven, we know, through the book of Job and through other passages. So Satan can access heaven. Satan has awesome powers inside the domain around. You can get a glimpse of that in the book of Daniel, where you have demonic powers over the nations. If you take a world map and you draw out the different countries and different colors and so on in a world map, and you elevate the map vertically, it appears that what happens is that the what we call the political boundaries of the nations actually are two dimensions of a three-dimensional field. And the three-dimensional field is the spiritual principalities and powers. And you get that from the text of the book of Daniel because when Daniel prayed, the prayer was delayed because the angel that came to answer Daniel's prayer actually had to penetrate some sort of a shield that was put over the land of what we call today Iraq and Iran that that angel that came in response to Daniel's prayer literally had to fight his way into the airspace over Iran and Iraq. Well, I mean, it sounds bizarre to our ears to hear this sort of stuff, but that evidently is what goes on. So, therefore, when Jesus Christ rose from um, uh, the Mount of Ascension there, just uh, east of where he was crucified, when he rose and he ascended and seated at the Father's right hand, that is militarily very significant because it means that Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand has the high ground. The high ground is now occupied and under control of a member of the human race. That means the high ground for the entire cosmos. So while there might be some obscure life forms elsewhere in the universe, the life form that dwells with the Father at his right hand is of the life form of this planet. And so a significant thing happened. At the, at, is the ascension of Christ is as important as the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection means that in his body, he has the first component of the new universe. It's going to replace this universe. But more significantly is by ascension to be at the Father's right hand, he has seized the high ground. Satan is now on the low ground. And this is why there's a fury on the part of the powers of darkness. The fury is that in principle they have been defeated. In principle, Jesus Christ has been successful. So therefore, a son of Adam has done what Adam could not do, what Noah could not do, what David could not do. But nevertheless, a man... God-man, he is God, but he is also man, and therefore in him is the fulfilled destiny of the human race from the moment of creation, that you shall subdue the earth. So Jesus Christ, by ascension, has commandeered the high ground. And what I want to look at tonight is just review a few things about terrain and geography. So you want to remember that um, 
what we read in the scripture uh, is not just a sweet little Sunday school story. And for those of you in the back, all I think I can say is, if you, you may want to come up a little closer if you want to see this. Um, but right now, because I haven't thought through how to do this effectively, someday I'll get my act together and we'll do it the right way. But um, just to review a little bit, because we want to always see what we're reading in Scripture as historical, true. It's not that it's a Sunday school story and it's, it's a nice, sweet story. This actually happened in history. Now, what I'm showing here is a map of Israel. The black lines that you see are there to remind us of lines of communication. Another thing that controls battles and controls why generals do certain things in battle is to gain the lines of communication. The lines of communication have to be secure. And you don't want, for example, if you have an army here and your supply line is here, you don't want somebody on the coastline cutting your supply line. Because the easiest way to defeat an army is not a frontal attack. The easiest way to defeat an army is cut off its logistics. So, this is, the, this is, the, all, this is like a road map of ancient Israel. And the thing we want to remember is that the, the ground that God had Joshua conquer and occupy, this whole area is in the main artery between three continents. We have to remember this. When God chose this location on planet Earth, He chose it so the trade routes that go to Asia come out of this area. Right down through here, they go to Africa. Off here to the northwest, they go to Europe. So of all the places on the planet that God could have conquered and put His kingdom in Old Testament form, He plopped it right smack dab on the lines of communication to three continents. And actually we could argue that he placed it in the lines of communication to all the continents because there were sea peoples along this coast who were colonizing the Western Hemisphere, who had already colonized it, we believe, as we said earlier. So that's the strategic picture of where the kingdom of God is located. It's located on the center of the lines of communication. It's very significant that he did that. Um, now, this map is a terrain map, again, to remind us of the, the terrain that's going to be involved in these series of stories in the Old Testament. Here, of course, is the Dead Sea. This is the Sea of Galilee. And you'll see there's a valley that runs right down here. This is the Great Rift Valley. And all this area, light green colored, is, tends, tends to be flat. It's rolling, but not rolling as much as here in Jarrettsville. Um, but it's, uh, it's a flat, pretty flat terrain. And then as you go west, uh, east, this area is the, is the high ground. So the high ground runs north-south with a valley here and the seacoast here. What Joshua's going to do is he's going to take the gate. This is Jerusalem right here, the center of the land. The gateway to Jerusalem and protecting the access to the city of Jerusalem is Jericho. So Jericho becomes strategically crucial in this campaign because it's the doorway. It's the eastern door to the highlands. Joshua is going to penetrate this area, seize control of this high ground, and once he gets control of this territory, then he's going to go south and he's going to go north. 
Ah, it's useless to try. Okay, this is a blow-up of a section of that map. This shows Jerusalem today and Jericho. And for those of you in the back, the, um, this probably is uh, maybe 15, I don't know, I'd say, let's see, Bethlehem to Jerusalem is five miles. So, for, so between the straight line distance between Jerusalem and Jericho is about 15 miles. I mean, this, it, when you get, when you ever go to Israel, you'll be surprised how small it is. Um, but the problem is, you can't get there by a straight line because remember you're coming up in the height of land, so you wander all over the place, and the road just goes all it's probably 25 miles road miles, even though it's only 15 miles growth lines. This is an example of the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. So it gives you an idea. That's a wadi through there. As in fact, there's a little monastery that somebody built right there on the side of that thing. Now, the road is actually, you're standing on the road looking off the road. You don't want to run your car off the road. You have a little problem there if you do that. But this gives an idea of the fact that Jerusalem is in, it's not high ground like uh, the Rocky Mountains. But it's not flat either. It's, it's quite pronounced. And this, for an infantry force, this represents an obstacle. This is another illustration, looking from the road out, except this picture I took on the road looking toward Jericho. By this time, we've gone 12, 15 miles down the road, and you're getting out. This is looking east, or actually northeast, and that rift valley that I showed you on the map between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, and I said Jericho was right there and Jerusalem was here. Well, we've come out about like so, and we're now looking at that rift valley. And this is that flat valley, and you can start to see green. Well, that green oasis there is Jericho. So now, this picture, the next picture, and the picture after that, I'm going to do kind of a camera sweep. This is northeast, the next picture will be east-northeast, the next picture will be east-southeast. And we're just shooting across so you can see a very interesting thing that critics often forget about the scriptures. Because one of the little cuties that they always bring up in college criticism classes is, well, see, the Bible has errors in it because Luke has Jesus going into Jericho and Matthew or somebody has Jesus going out of Jericho. And they say, ha-ha, see, there's an error in the Bible. Well, watch a minute. Uh, whoever said that never went there to see what Jericho was like. Anyway, that's Jericho. That's looking east-northeast. Again, you see green in the background. Jericho's in those orchards. It's, uh, I forgot what kind of orchards they are, but it's an oasis type thing. And this is east-southeast. East now, what you find is, if we had this blown up so we could see it, there's Jericho here, and there's Jericho here. Because both of them date from two different periods of time, and they built the city two different times, and so they have two different Jerichos. So, obviously, Jesus can go out of Jericho and be going into Jericho. It depends which Jericho is involved. Well, but see, this is where you know impressionable college kids sit there in a the classroom and listen to Dr. So-and-so that has, you know, whatever, pile higher or something, and... Uh, this is what happens that not knowing the terrain what we have here is impressionable students think this guy is really shown as a contradiction in scripture 
we t I took that shot just to see in all that hot, dry land. Uh, this is why Jericho's at Jericho, because people need water. And they didn't have water pumps. They had to rely on spring-fed water sources. So that's the source of the water that waters the city of Jericho. Jericho's there for a reason. And this is a tower that possibly dated uh, either prior or during the time of Joshua. And that's the kind of bricks that they used in those days. It's something they dug up back 20, 30 years ago. You can see this is all dirt. It's all excavated around this. This was a footing for, for a wall. And so it gives you some idea of, of what, what they built like. Okay, so keeping that in mind, let's turn uh, in the text to a, a, a little notice. Joshua 6. Turn book of Joshua chapter 6 verse 26 I want to, this is just a minor note but it has a major implication In that note, you'll see where Joshua, if you read it carefully, is cursing the city of Jericho. And he, he makes a very specific notice in that curse. See where he says, Joshua made them take an oath, saying, Cursed before Jehovah is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation the loss is implied in the text, with the loss of his younger son, shall he set up its gates. So this is a specific notice that at that place, after it was ruined by the conquest, the engineer or city planner who tries to rebuild this will lose his son. We, all, we said that one of the arguments that we have to, as Christians, protect, we're concerned with this, and you have a bunch of evangelicals, oh, it doesn't make any difference if there are a few errors in the Bible. It makes all the difference in the world. If there's one error in the Scriptures, then the authority is moved out of the Scriptures to judge which is true and which is false. So that's all you need is one error in the Scripture. That is a very critical point. And we said the reason why it's critical is because when God says He sets up a covenant... And the covenant or a contract is to specify behavior over time that you have to have a contract monitored by a record of performance. Has so-and-so, a party to the covenant, performed the terms of the covenant? That's why the Bible is so critically accurate. Now, here's an example of how accurate the Scripture is. This is a little notice in verse 26. If you were reading this on a chapter-a-day Bible reading plan, you probably just skip right over verse 26 and never give it two cents worth of attention. All right, Turn to 1 Kings 16. Verse 34. This is written in the time of Ahab, probably 7800 BC. Joshua lived 
about 1350 or so B.C. So what's 850, 1350? Five centuries. How long is five centuries? Well, think of 1997 minus five is 1497. So this would be like somebody cursing something in Florida, say, back when Columbus was around, and saying, whoever builds this again in Florida is going to lose his son. And somebody in 1997 decides to go buy this land in Florida and try to build a building on it, and he loses his son. Now, what would you think about somebody? This is not some weird thing out of Nostradamus or something. This is a specific, concrete, clear scripture. What does it say in 1 Kings 34? In his day, heal. And by the way, let's go to verse 33. See, Ahab made the Ashtoreth. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, that is in the days of Ahab and his apostate government, Heel, the Bethlehite, built Jericho. So right away, what was the motive to build Jericho? We don't care whether Joshua cursed it in the name of Jehovah. We are so big and powerful, we don't really care. So we're going to go do it. He laid its foundation with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn. And he set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Again, if you were on a chapter a day Bible study, Bible reading plan, you'd read right over that, never connect it. But isn't this, a mis- isn't this interesting? This is one of those little tiny details that always excites me about Scripture. And this is why I can't go along with these people that, well, we're not sure whether the days in Genesis are days. They might be millions of years. And we're not sure of this interpretation. We're not sure of that interpretation. But crying out loud, can we read or can't we? Joshua 6 tells us a specific thing. 1 Kings reports it 500 years later. Now, obviously, the author of verse 34 knew very well the text of Joshua. So what do our liberal friends in the university campus tell us about this? Joshua's written after 1 Kings. Can't have prophecy like this. So that's, that's how the, the, the logic flows. But I wanted you to observe, in this terrain, with all the other things we're talking about, here's a little particular about that city, about that tower. You saw a piece of the debris. I showed you the piece of the debris. And they were trying to rebuild that. That tower I showed you in the picture is, is Joshua time. So what's going on here in 1 Kings 16 is after that time of that tower was there. So that tower had been sitting there for five centuries. Uh, before these guys came along. And it sat there all these centuries since those guys came along. So, was the city built? Yes, it was built because we see it today. It's, it's rebuilt. But it was rebuilt at a cost because it was a cursed place to build. Okay, let's look now at the uh, chart, if you will, on, on uh, summarizing the events. On page 85... Then we'll go back to some of the events. We've covered the covenant breaking at Sinai. I I suggest that you kind of, if you're interested in doing something like this, is to read these stories 
Maybe if you're a little artistic, maybe draw a picture of it or at least draw a sort of a sloppy little cartoon on a piece of paper to fix it in your mind so you can picture this whole event because you can use this event to fortify truth in your heart because our hearts feed on imaginative pictures. And that's what's so powerful about the Old Testament. It gives you the pictures so you can see this happening. The covenant breaking at Sinai, I showed you the picture of Horeb one night, remember? We showed you the little dorky little subset little mountain down in the bottom and that was the big thing. They put the big idol to Jehovah there and here Moses is up on the big mountain talking to the real God. And it's just so ironic when you sit there, stand there and look at it. I mean, is this, were these people real or what? So, what does it teach us? It teaches us for a new heart and a need for a gracious intercessor. The second one is the declaration of holy war, preview of final judgment, the fiasco at Kadesh Barnea, the necessity for holy war. And we went into this remembering that when we try to defend the scriptures, the thing we always want to do is go back to the framework. I reiterate that over and over because that's one of the strong things that I want to emphasize in Thursday night class is when we think biblically, we have to think in terms of the whole Bible. It all hangs together. If you follow the reasoning in the paragraphs under this, because we're just going to dwell just a little bit on uh, uh, Declaration of Holy War and Fiasco of Kadesh Barnea because this is such a bone of contention with so many people. When you get on a talk show or you get into a discussion with your neighbors or you go in, this is, all, this is going to come up. If these people are at all biblically literate, this is the thing they're going to pull on you. So you want to be prepared. Why? Oh, you're a Christian, huh? You believe in the God of love. Well, what about? So you, you, before, you, before you answer, you've got to back up a little bit and think, what is the issue here? Don't answer the question before you load your gun. Think before you answer. So let's go through these paragraphs. Um... From these and other events in the period of the conquest and settlement, we learn what life is like in the leading edge of the kingdom of God as it intrudes into the paganized Noahic civilization. Taken as an isolated series of events, now, you want to underline that clause, taken as an isolated series of events and continue underlining, set within an unbelieving framework, this holy war does appear in utter moral conflict with ethics taught elsewhere in Scripture. The PLO propaganda does seem right. An unprovoked aggression carried out in barbarous violation of mercy. But notice what we've, we've qualified it. We've looked at what the opponents of our faith are saying, and we've said you can say that, but when you say what you are saying, you are also operating within your framework. And here's what your framework looks like. And you may, in conversation, have to pull this out because most people today can't think in terms of a framework. They, they emotionalize and they run off at the mouth without thinking the background of what it is they're talking about. We do that. I mean, and so the unbeliever naturally is going to do that more. So remember, the, the two clauses here. They, in order to make the criticism, what they're doing is they're looking at the Bible as an isolated series of events that are unrelated to each other. Like there's no plan in history. These are just random things that happen. And then they have a completely unbelieving framework of interpretation. Now we come to the next paragraph. 
The Bible-believing Christian, however, knows that each part of the Bible must be taken within the framework of the whole. I, I, I guess it was last year I made this illustration. Um, I had a friend of mine as a pilot in B-52s over Vietnam, and uh, one of the things he was saying to me, he, how scared he was in his first, second, and third combat missions, and the first mission he flew was in the uh, daytime, and he said that that mission, he was co-pilot, and the, the, the B-52s have to fly in a formation. And it's the formation part that I want in this illustration. And the reason is they fly in a certain formation. They are different altitudes and different relative positions to each other. Now, that's not to, to make it look pretty. That's because each of those aircraft is defending the other one. In this case, electronically. So if there's a SAM missile fired at those aircraft, they're deflecting those with various techniques or trying to. But the problem is, psychologically, if you're the pilot, and this is what my friend's problem was, he was the co-pilot on one of these B-52s, and he says, man, those suckers start coming up at you. It looks like a flying telephone pole headed right for your cockpit. And you have a choice. Your emotions cry out, get on that stick and let's move this thing out of here. But the, but the training, your military training says, don't go with your emotions. There's a procedure that we are going to use. We have rehearsed this and rehearsed it and rehearsed it over and over and over and over repetitively. So that if this happens, you're not going to react emotionally. You're going to go with the policy, with the doctrine. And the doctrine is you hang in the formation. So he said, and he watched these things come, and sure enough, boom. And, he, and so he says, well, Lord, let's do it at night. So I trust it now. I'm going to get the formation right. But let, let's do a run at night, and then I don't have to see these things coming toward me. So the next night, the, the next mission he flies is at night. The problem was, and when they blow up, they light up the whole clouds. Then he can't see where they are. So then he decided, now that wasn't too smart to pray that prayer. So on the third mission he flew, he decided, Lord, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, so you just do it, you know, fly us wherever you want. I'll just mind my business and do my thing. Well, my point in this story is that each one of those aircraft defends the other. You can't, one plane doesn't do it. And you can't take one piece out of the Bible and ever hope to defend it. If you think about it, that's what's going on here, isn't it? The unbeliever takes this chunk of Scripture and he throws it at you. See, you can't answer that. But what is he doing? If we respond to that technique, we've broken formation. See, the unbeliever wants us to break formation. Our emotions want to defend and so we go charge right in there to defend that peace. But like those pilots in that combat situation, you've got to go back to, wait a minute, I know my emotions want to do that, but what's right? What's the doctrine that controls? What's the policy that controls our responses in this situation? This piece of Scripture has got to be interpreted in light of this. Remember we went back to this? This was the doctrine of the fall, the doctrine of the Creator. And we said that the doctrine of holy war is related to that right there. Now, if you miss this, you're going to be stripped 
when it comes to trying to defend this section of Scripture. You can't do it. You cannot do it. You're going to be wiped out if you try it. The way the Scripture makes sense is that internally to the Scripture, all Scripture taken together does have justification for holy war. The justification is uh, objections to the conquest and settlement have to be exposed. Such objections assume that the ethical norms of common grace, borrowed, by the way, from the Bible, first of all, imply everlasting tolerance of evil. Now, think about that statement. What they're doing is they're saying the Bible tells us to be gracious. Yes? Yes. That's no, no problem there. We don't debate that. But think about it for a minute. Does the command to be gracious apply forever? What would be the consequence of grace forever? If grace went on forever and never stopped, what would be true? Evil would never be eliminated. So, grace is not a permanent feature in the plan of God. This shocks some people. What? Grace of God comes to an end? Consequences of grace don't. Consequences go on forever and ever. I didn't say the consequences of grace come to an end. I said grace comes to an end. Because if you don't believe that, then you've got a big problem. How do you get rid of evil? You've got to have judgment somewhere or you never get rid of evil. So, that's the whole point of holy war. This is one point in history where we see a little bit on a small scale what it means to judge evil and eliminate it. And that's the defense of this section of Scripture. But believe me, you're dead if you don't take it back to this. If you just take it as an isolated story, you've got a big problem. Because the other guy is going to take the, the ethics of common grace and he's going to kill you with them. Why, that conflicts with the ethics of God. Of course it does. Absolutely. Because the grace of God's coming to an end. See, that's bad news. The grace of God is coming to an end, and you ought to be glad it is. Because that's the only way you get rid of evil. You can't have it both ways. People yell and curse at God for all the bad things that happen. Then they turn around and curse at God because He's going to judge. Well, now what's God supposed to do? You can't have it both ways. If you don't object to evil and you want it relieved and you want to get rid of it, then it's got to be gotten rid of. And to get rid of it, you have to have judgment. And to have judgment, you've got to end grace. So, that's, that's what we're trying to say. Now, there's one further principle we want to look here before we go any further. In the la- next to last paragraph, page 85, you'll see an underlined sentence. And it's something that we want to understand about what's... This is big stakes that go on here. Two mutually opposed ultimate principles cannot coexist. There is not room enough in the universe for rebellion and sovereign grace and the sovereign rule of God. There's not enough. God is either rule of all or He's not ruler at all. And so either God is sovereign or the creature is sovereign. You can't have these two principles. One will eliminate the other every time. What that means in a practical way, because I want to get down to practical things, what that means practically is that if you and I follow the Lord in our lives, 
We are being guided by an ultimate principle in total contradiction to the principle of the world system. And this is why in the world Jesus said you shall have tribulation. Why is that? Because he said, if they hated me, who will they hate? You who follow me. You see, the two principles will be at war with one another. This is why in our, our day, in the last 15 or 20 years, we're seeing more and more persecution of the Christian church all over the world. More Christians have died in the 20th century than in all 19 centuries. Think about it. This century has been the bloodiest century against the Christian church of Jesus Christ than all 19 centuries put together and summed. Colson put it this way in his radio program this week. He's absolutely right. The Christian has now become the scapegoat of choice for every thug regime on earth. From Ethiopia to China, Christians are being killed, their children taken away from them, babies being aborted, their homes being destroyed. Not a whimper, not a peep from the Human Rights Commission, the UN Council. If this were any other minority, any other minority, there'd be an upcry about it. But the Christians are fair game. Because why? Well, how do you explain this aberration? That, the, that they allow human rights abuses to the Christians and they don't allow it to anybody else. Do you know why? Because the Christians somehow remind the world of an ultimate principle that condemns their ultimate principle. And somehow these people aren't worthwhile. They're, they're somehow people out of step. They're people go against the grain. We really don't like these people. Now, that's our destiny. But it's a sad tale that's not very well known or told that we live in the bloodiest anti-Christian century in the history. Okay, so those are the three parts. There's holy war. My, my summary point about that two, two mutually opposed principles is we are in a holy war right now. It's a holy war in the realm of the ideas and the spirit. And there's no quarter. One or the other side will win. Now, looking at the rest of those, uh, those events on page 85, the victory of Jericho, the defeat of Ai, longest day. We, we went through the Jericho and Ai last time, and I think Jericho was clear of God asking believers to do some idiot-looking thing, but that, that reminds us that he is creator, we're creatures, and that he has a perfect plan. It goes back to the diagram we've drawn again and again that God is, has an omniscience. And our finite intelligence can never put a plan together equal to his. And so, here God is. He, is. he is omniscient. Here man is, and we are, and we have knowledge, but it's all limited. And so we have our plans that look like that. God has plans that are tremendously and infinitely complex, and they fracture our plans. So we may have a piece of the plan, another piece over here, and it doesn't seem to fit to us. But in God's mind, these are, do fit. They fit perfectly together. We just can't see how they fit together. Well, this is Joshua's problem. He was told to do some kind of silly stuff at Jericho. And that's what we mean by the works of faith. Faith does these works. But it's works done not because I turn my brains off, but because I submit to the fact that there's a rationality in the universe that I can never comprehend. I cannot put it totally together. 
I just know he expects me to do this. It looks like it's going to conflict with that, but hey, who am I? Defeated AI? Externals don't cut the mustard. It has to be, a, remember we said the law is addressed to the human heart. And if God, people are not submissive, if we don't submit our hearts to God, we can't be victorious in the public and the externals. Longest day at Iolan. Now we want to look at that incident for just a moment. Um, in the text, if you go to um, page 83 and turn to Joshua chapter 9. This is one of those passages, again, often skipped over, but there's some amazing things stated here. If you're familiar with this section of the Old Testament, you'll remember the Gibeonites were part of the cursed people of the land. They came, they uh, disguised themselves as foreigners, and they got Joshua to agree to a mutual aid pact against the rest of the Canaanites, and now Joshua's in a mess. So here's a case where a believer was deceived. Um, in chapter one, 9, verse 1, it came about when all the kings were beyond the Jordan and so on of the great sea, heard of it, that they gathered themselves with one accord to fight with Joshua and Israel. So the country is now unified to attack the Jews. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they acted craftily. They sent out envoys. They took worn-out sacks and their donkeys, wineskins, worn out and torn and mended. And they faked like they were foreigners. So they deceived Joshua. Now the problem is, in chapter 10, as a result of this deception, verse 1 of chapter 10, now it came about when Adonizedek king of Jerusalem heard that Joshua had captured Ai and utterly destroyed it. And the Hams of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city. Therefore, Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to the king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, king of the Lachish, king of Debir. The idea there is that there's an alliance that rapidly forms. On the map on page, whatever it is, page 84, that alliance is to be seen on the south of Jerusalem. It's in the high ground and the, the south area of Jerusalem. So from Jerusalem, you draw a line southwest from Jerusalem, that's the axis of this alliance. So maybe if we... I don't have a map of the area, but if I can just eyeball things a little here. Here's the Dead Sea. Here's Jerusalem. The axis of the alliance is like this. Joshua is moving like this. He's already conquered here and he's conquered Jericho. So now these guys are all coming up in an alliance to fight him. And they're fighting him for this high ground. So there's a big, big alliance. And so now in chapter uh, 10, verse 9. Here's, the, here's how the drama unfolds. Exciting chapter. Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. So there's the military uh, secret of surprise. He used a lot, utilizes military tactics. The Lord confounded them before Israel. He slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by way of the ascent. Notice the ascent of Beth Horan and struck them as far as Zika and Medica. What he's, doing, what he's done here is he's driven the army south. So now Joshua has had a preliminary victory and he's doing this number. He's going along the high ground and now his enemies 
<coughs> from the ascent are trying to come up here to reinforce. The battlefront is now moving. It's moving rapidly. But what did we understand happened to the army? And if you think about the army uh, in verse 9, if the, you, you put yourself in their position. Here you are. What did you do all night? You marched. What are you doing all morning? Fighting. Well, how do you feel at noon? Tired. Now, this is the amazing thing. Now, the battle, the whole battle now got started because here was a man who was deceived by the enemy. But he kept his word. Joshua kept his word. He knows he got in a bad deal, but he kept his word. So, now how does he get out of this one? You see, when the army is in this position of rapid motion, they're tired here. They're more tired than their enemies are because their enemies weren't marching at night. So now the problem is going to come is you can be very liable to a counterattack. If I were the enemy commander and I knew my opponents were strung out like this, what would I do? Flanking maneuver. Cut them off. Now this is the danger he's in. He's in an extended area with greatly fatigued troops. So, verse 12. Then... Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites and he said in the sight of Israel. Now, why he said this? The Holy Spirit obviously promoted this prayer. O sun, stand still in Gibeon. O moon, in the valley of Ayalon. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Joshua? See, that's one of those books that we're talking about in canonicity. Remember I said there were other books that had disappeared? Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. What a magnificent story. You see, this counterattack, just as soon as the sun set, they would be liable. Here they are, moved into enemy territory with very little protection on their flanks, greatly fatigued. These guys haven't fought all night. So they can come up here and crane them. So what's got to happen? He's got to clean them out before nightfall. So what does God do? He turns on the lights. Going to have a night game. And he does it by doing two things, not one thing. Notice the carefully how the text is written. He addresses both the sun and the moon. One is the, is the member in Genesis 1. One controls the day, one controls the night. So, it looks like the heavens stop. Now, whether the earth stopped rotating, what happened, we have no idea. There are some implications. We won't get into those that some have made. But one of the foolish impl- uh, handles, you usually try to read some... Tears. If you look at verses 1 to 5, now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you out of Egypt. I led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. As for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed me. What is this that you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. And it shall come when the angel of the Lord spoke these words of all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And they named the place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. 
Verse 20, come down because the intermediate text is describing the cycle of, of apostasy. Skip down to verse 20. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and not listened to my voice, I also will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. And on page 84, you can see the territory that was conquered. It does not match the previous map back a few pages. You just compare the two maps and you can see the shaded territory doesn't fit. So what does this tell us? It tells us that at this point in the Old Testament, early on in the Old Testament, here's the timeline again. 2000 B.C., Abraham. 1000 B.C., David, roughly 1500, actually 1400, Moses. Right here is Joshua, and probably by this time, around 1200, they haven't even been in the land 200 years, and they basically flubbed it. And so here we have the announcement of doom that says that this nation, Israel, is not by itself going to get the land. What does this open the door for now? Who will get them the land? Who do they now look forward to as their grand leader? First of all, it starts in the book of Judges because every man did what was right in his own eyes and the people cried out for a king. But then they had David, they had Saul, they had David, they had Solomon. Solomon had a son by the name of Rehoboam, which is one of the all-time idiots. And then you had a civil war and the whole northern end of the country goes down the tubes, and then the southern kings weren't much better. And what does that teach? See, God always maneuvers a pedagogical purpose to history. You wanted a king because you realized that the sentence of Bochim, that by yourselves you weren't cutting the mustard here. You needed a strong leader. So you said to me, give me a king. So I gave you a king. What happens to the kings? What does that show about the kings? In the, in the span of history of the Old Testament. Why do you have this awful, awful historical narrative of one screw-up after another in the part of the king? What is that teaching about the nature of the king? You know better than the people. So what does that eliminate as possible solutions now? We can't do it ourselves, and we can't have government do it for us. So we haven't learned that yet. We're fixing to learn that again. People can't do it. Government can't do it. Who does it? It's Messiah. And that's, the, that's why in the book of Psalms, and who wrote most of the book of Psalms? One of the kings. And what does David do in the book of Psalms so often? Why does the book of Psalms become so favorite reading among Christians? It's because we identify with his hope. And in that book of Psalms, David takes himself as the office holder, the king, the Meshach means the anointed king. And he does this. There's a splitting that occurs in the book of Psalms between the king and the king. And slowly, after David, what do the prophets then talk more and more in terms of? He who shall come will deliver you, O Israel. So that emphasis they have learned from this point in their history when they tried by their own obedience 
to follow the Lord, it was insufficient because they're fallen people. They tried by a king and they wanted him to do the job for them and he failed. And so therefore, all doors have been closed until there comes in the fullness of time the God-man Savior. You see, this is why the New Testament can't be read. Or, or you can read it any time, obviously. But my point is, you can't appreciate the New Testament if you don't go through the process of the Old Testament because that's what the Holy Spirit took the people through. So when Jesus came, they would appreciate why you have to start with this kind of a Messiah. Because He's got to be a Messiah that has the heart for God. And that's got to be demonstrated in a humble way. And then you'll see His glory. But first things first. So this is all a build-up and an adumbration to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we want to do next time is we're going to start on the last of this chapter. And for this spring, this will be the end of it. I'm not going to go on to David because we're running too late this spring. But we're going to, on page 86, start with the truth of sanctification. This is the doctrine that controls Christian growth or spiritual growth. And that's the doctrine we want to associate with this event. Remember, we've, at each event now, as we've come forward, we've associated some doctrine. And the conquest and settlement is going to be a picture of the doctrine of sanctification. The making holy of the believer. Principles of spiritual growth. <clears throat> and it's going to be mirrored by uh, the events of the conquest and settlement. I want to conclude by drawing your attention on page 86 to a quote by probably one of the most eminent um, students in military history in the 20th century, a man who basically was the guy that, uh, well, uh, the Germans learned a lot from him, and, uh, and basically Patton learned a lot from this man. B.H. Liddell Hart was an Englishman who wrote various texts on doctrines of war. Uh, the Israeli army in 1948 learned a lot about this man. But uh, it's a fascinating book. It's called, um, hmm, forgot the name of it. Strategy, I think, is the name of it. But B.H. Liddell Hart went down through the corridors of time studying the great commanders. And he asked himself the question, how did the guys that win battles win them? And he made an exciting discovery. He discovered that the people that were the great conquerors never did so in a direct way. They always conquered indirectly. We'll get more into that. But the other thing that he made was what the state paragraph that he has quoted, that I have quoted here on page 86. And this I'm applying to us as Christians because it's a warning to all of us. You don't build your personal idea of what the Christian life is all about from your personal experiences. The woods are full today of people that make up their own way of living the Christian life because they had an experience at 13 or something else happened at 25 or something happened to their wife or something happened to their husband and out of this they just reflect upon it and they build this whole big edifice about how God the Holy Spirit works. You can't build such serious stuff out of your limited personal experience. Your personal experience is subservient to the lessons of history. That's what keeps you sane and balanced. And here's what Hart said about the soldier. Even in the most active career, especially a soldier's career, the scope and possibilities of direct experience are extremely limited. 
Direct experience is too limited to form an adequate foundation either for theory or for application. At the best, it produces an atmosphere that is of value in drying and hardening the structure of thought. The greater value of indirect experience lies in its greater variety and extent. And he's talking about, in this case, the soldier who studies history to learn principles. And that's what we, we've done now. We've gone through and we've studied these key events of the conquest and settlement. So what are we going to do? We're simply going to apply those. And from those, develop a historically valid idea of what spiritual growth looks like. And we'll do that next week as we start forward. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you that you do teach us, that you do guide us, that you're gracious to us to pick us up when we fall that we can come to you and confess our sins to you and you cleanse us from all sin. We thank you through the Lord Jesus. In his name, amen. Any of you have any questions, something you'd like to discuss, I'll be here for a few minutes afterward. So, um, we'll try to get everybody out of here shortly. Um, the question raised is this one. It's obvious from biblical history that because Israel didn't eliminate the Canaanites and didn't eliminate the people in the land, she had a very unhappy history. And even today, what are the Israelite, the modern-day descendants of Israel doing? Still having a problem. Now, had they cleaned the land out in the first place, they probably would have dwelt in, in, in peace for centuries. Uh, so now the principle is, does this principle apply to us? When you, when you take principles of the Old Testament over to the church, you're not any longer dealing with Israel. You're dealing with the church. So we have what dispensational... Well, nations, yeah. But the, there's a principle I think we all see in our Christian life is when God points to something that he wants out of our lives, we diddle with it and, and play with it and don't eliminate it it causes prolonged suffering. So, that, that's one application of that same principle that you see. That it's, it's sanctification. And, and God, obviously, is not calling us to be perfect. In one sense, he's calling us to be perfect. But in another sense, he knows we're not going to be perfect. But the idea is that there come those times and moments of choice in our lives. And, and I think you can see it particularly um, where you can counter Christians who have been disobedient over a prolonged period of time. Um, is just suffering on top of suffering on top of suffering, crying out. How do we unravel this one? And when you start looking at it, it's because a choice is made, a choice is made, a choice is made, and it, the issue wasn't dealt with when it should have been dealt with, and it just grows you know, like mold. Yeah, we all have. Yeah, that's true of all of us in our lives. And uh, so there's a warning, I think, that we see in the Old Testament history, where God told them that this is, you do it my way, and it's a lot easier. It seems harder, and it strikes us as, as scary to do it his way. But in the final analysis, very perceptive. And you can see historically, I don't know if you want to apply the principle historically, but um, I'll tell you a group of people who tried to do it. And that was two, two summers ago, I, I gave, showed you the film downstairs of uh, Oliver Cromwell in England. And... Um, people have all kinds of bad things to say about those nasty, nasty Puritans who took the head of the king, finally. They got very serious. But it was a case where the Christians of that time uh, 
were, were being asked, how did it go? They were being asked to submit completely to centralized power. The king said that he had the right not only to rule in the civil sphere, but the king of England had the right to alter forms of worship as he pleased. And the Puritans said, you're not going to alter our forms of worship. You just forget that. Well, two ultimate principles can't coexist. And so, it was either destroy the Puritans or the Puritans destroyed the king. And the obvious was that the Puritans destroyed the king. But it didn't last. And that's the problem because any human civil... Uh, like our country, and our country is found in a godly way and it, the way it's going, it's not going to last. Because It's not because people aren't uh, law-abiding necessarily. It's just because the whole spiritual tenor is wiped out. And, and it's because we're, we're part of fallen, dark history. And it's not going to be solved. If the king, if the civil government of Israel couldn't solve the problem and the people of Israel couldn't solve the problem, that was a theocracy where God directly ruled. Then for crying out loud, what do we think we're going to do as Gentile nations? So that's why we hope for the Messiah. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, is God going to fulfill the promise <clears throat> to give the land to the Jews before Christ comes? Apparently not. Because the coming of the Messiah, if you look in the Old Testament, is viewed as the one who fulfills that covenant. And it dates, goes back to this Bokim incident where he, he says, I'm not going to drive them out, period. And so it's going to be when the Messiah comes and he does it. However, in a partial sense, they are drawn to the land because Jesus comes to a Jewish temple where there's Jewish worship. And he tells the people, don't flee or flee on the Sabbath day, or you can't flee on the Sabbath day. Pray that it not be so that you can't travel. So that shows you that Israel, at the time that Jesus comes back, is there, has survived, probably has a temple of some sort that she's worshiping in, and has instituted sabbatical laws. So even though not the total land, I mean, you look in that map, that total land goes all the way down to Egypt and all the way northwest or north northeast up well into the edge of Syria. So um, that appears not. Because the, if they could, then you'd say, well, gee, doesn't that invalidate Judges chapter 2? But Israel Israel's going to survive. And that's the key. And see, that Israel's survival has caused a revolution in a lot of Bible thinking because in the... 18th century and the 19th century, it was fashionable in, in even evangelical circles to interpret prophecy sort of allegorically. And they were applied to the church. The promises were always applied to the church. And there were a few holdout premillennialists that held out, no, those promises of the land apply to Israel. They were given to Israel and they apply to Israel. And uh, uh, people said, no, no. Well, then what's happened in the 20th century? Israel's come into existence again. I mean, this is unheard of. For a nation that went out of existence for 2,000 years to come back into existence with the language intact and the racial genetic structure intact, that's, that's amazing. There's not another civilization that's ever pulled that off. You could say, well, China. Well, China never disappeared for... They couldn't get China to disappear for 2,000 years... 
So there's never been a nation like that. And the other nations, while existing genetically, Egyptians, uh, Persians, and so forth. In fact, Dr. Jeek, you know, he always talks about himself as a Persian. It's very interesting. I, when Jeek talks about Iran, and you get him talking, he'll, he'll revert to his historic identity, which is Persian, not Iran. Iran's just a modern name. And so um, you have this, this non-existence of people that they're just sitting there. We all have genes of, of the sons of Japheth, sons of Noah, sons of Noah in some way. But the Jews exist coherently. And one tribe of Jews has preserved their identity, the Levites. And they were the ones forecast in the book of Numbers that your name will abide. And everybody that wears a pair of jeans walks around testimony to that promise. Anyway, it's a fascinating area of the Bible, and it's one that we just warn you about uh, being vulnerable to, because you, you know, uh, Marsha was just saying when when uh, her daughter was at college, you got the whole line fed to her about the errors in the Bible and this and that. And I would imagine if we'd sat in the classes, this would have been a favorite place to park the car, you know, and, and make fun of the scriptures. So just learn that there's ways of defending it. Maybe not popular ways of defending it, but there are logical ways of defending it. Yes, Debbie.